Father, sometimes the, um, even the good things that you promise us uh, frighten us at least a little bit, and sometimes a lot. We ask, Father, that um, we thank you, Father, that you know our hearts, you know what we're really like, and we thank and praise you that knowing what we're really like, that you love us. And so, Father, we ask that uh, your Holy Spirit would move gently but deeply and powerfully in each of our hearts, that we might hear the words of the Scripture, that those words of your Scripture, uh, in light of the Gospel, might enter deep into who we are. And we uh, give you permission, Father, for your word to speak and rule and heal and, and lead and guide in our hearts. And we ask this in the, in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. So uh, this morning I uh, might touch on some things which are a bit painful for people emotionally. So I ask that you sort of give me a little bit of a a little bit of grace, uh, given that some of the things I say might be a bit painful to uh, to some of us. Uh, but we're gonna we're beginning a new sermon series. It's on the life of Abraham. So we're going to be going from Genesis 12 to Genesis 22 uh, this week, and over the 10 weeks uh, that follow, we'll finish, uh, God willing, in the first Sunday of July. And uh, so, if you uh, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, Genesis chapter 12. Verse 1, uh, we're going to look at a very, very simple text, uh, a very profound text, and for many people, a very scary text. And why is it scary? Well, let's look at how it begins. Um, and actually, I'm just going to say one thing before we... No, I'll, I'll read the text, then I'll read it again. I'll, I'll make a bit of a comment about it. Here's how it begins. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your... Con- go." from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, uh, just before this, in terms of the context of the book, uh, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, uh, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you have the story of the creation of the world and, uh, and the first humans and, and sort of basically setting up the, the fundamental Christian understanding of creation and what it means to be human and what it means to flourish. And, uh, and God saw that everything was good. And in Genesis chapter 3, we have the profound turning point in the cosmos and in human life. Uh, where evil and brokenness uh, and bentness, so to speak, enters into the world when uh, Adam and Eve uh, choose to exalt themselves uh, over God, to not trust his word, to exalt themselves over God. And there's this rupture, this break that happens in humanity and in all of creation. And uh, and then there's other things that happen, uh, which we're not going to go into between that moment and the end of Genesis 11. But here's sort of the point. Uh, Up until this point in time, there are three judgments by God. And there are five times where God pronounces a curse. So between uh, sort of the first few verses of Genesis chapter 3 and the end of Genesis chapter 11, you have these three times where a judgment is issued by God uh, against human beings and five times where uh, he curses things. 
And uh, I know that just even for many of us listening to this, the whole idea that God would pronounce a curse is both sort of hokey and um, childish and also just somehow seems wrong. And I'll explain in a moment what that, what that means. But mindful of that, what you're now going to see is this turning point uh, in the rest of the Bible. And in some ways, what God says to Abram in these three verses sets the agenda, the program, for all of the rest of the Bible. All of the rest of the Bible, in a sense, is going to try to unpack that and develop that and unearth that and deepen that and extend it and, and fill it in. So mindful of the three curses, uh, sorry, the three judgments and the five curses, we now have this statement again. Hear it again. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This, in the original language, five times the word blessing uh, in some form is mentioned in the original language. Now, what's the scary part of that? The scary part of that is the very first things that God says to Abram. Uh, Look again at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go. Go from your country, go from your kindred, and go from your father's house to the land that I will show you. He's told to go and leave behind his family, his country, and his kindred, in a sense, the larger clan or tribe. And he's told to go to a place that he's not even told where it's going to be. He's just told to go. And uh, if you're watching this and uh, you're sort of a seeker trying to figure out what the Christian faith is, or you're maybe looking here for more ammo as to why you shouldn't be a Christian, well, first of all, welcome if you're here, and welcome if you're here. Um, uh, I just want to share with you that Christians find this idea frightening as well, because uh, part of what it means to be human, uh, but not the best part of what it means to be human, is to desire to have a lot more control over things. And so one of the fears is that uh, if you actually sort of launch yourself in the Christian faith, that it's just going to be this open-ended thing, and before you know it, like you get weird, and you get weirder, and you get weirder, and you get weirder, and you get weirder, because God just gives you this, this command just to go. And he doesn't even tell you all the steps that he's going to give you. He doesn't tell you exactly what it's going to look like. And, and that, on one hand, is, is, is sort of very frightening to people. And it's, it's frightening at different times to Christians. But, but what's actually... I don't know if this will make it easier, and this is where I might uh, I need your grace because I might touch on a couple of things which are very uh, uncomfortable for you. Um, some of the things which are most key to human flourishing involve the same type of step into the unknown. Now, just just before I give you these examples, and I know that there are people in the room. Who, would long, who long to be married and haven't been able to be married. And I know there are people in the room and people watching who have been married and their marriage is either in the process of dissolution or has broken up and it's been very painful. And, um, 
And I know there are people in the room who would desperately love to be able to have children or more children and haven't been able to have children. I know there are people in the room who've had miscarriages. So I know that this example can be painful to some. But, well, I'll use a personal example. When I got to hold Elizabeth, my daughter, uh, my sixth child, uh, in my arms, I didn't know that five years later, I would spend a couple of days in the intensive care unit of the children's hospital watching her fight for every breath and not know whether she was going to live or whether she was going to die. And I didn't know. I mean, she ends up surviving. Those of you who don't know me, she she survived. Turned out she had a very rare form of pneumonia that usually only very elderly people get, but somehow or another it's very rare for a five-year-old girl to get this type of pneumonia that only, that usually only elderly people get. And they were able to treat it. But, you know, some 16, 17 years, 18 years later, whatever, I got to walk her down the aisle uh, because she's going to marry David. And uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I got to hold her fourth child in my arms, Levi, the grandchild. Now, the, the point of all of this is that we all know that there are areas of human flourishing that when you take that first step into it, you have no idea what's going to be down the road. And that's why I, I, I shared that I, in some ways I know I'm touching upon things here which can be very, very difficult. So that one of the things that's really important for us to know as Christians, two of the things which are very, very, very wonderful, profoundly emotionally important for, the Christi- for, for Christians, it's from the outside, you, you might not realize it, but once the gospel grips you, there are two things about the gospel and the biblical narrative that are of profound emotional importance. And the first one is that our flourishing as human beings doesn't depend upon being married or upon having children or upon having certain types of professional accreditation or having a large family or, or any family at all. That One of the things which is so profoundly beautiful and important about the Christian faith is that every individual, just by the virtue of them being born and, and becoming God's children by adoption and grace, the possibility of flourishing is there. Like real flourishing. Like real, like real flourishing. In fact, one of the things, uh, there's this wonderful book, if you get a chance to read it, by a scholar who taught at University of Edinburgh, he died... Uh, just a couple of years ago, he wrote uh, two books before he died on how on earth it is that anybody in the ancient world would have become a Christian, given that it involves such a profound break from your culture. The, the man's name was Larry Hurtato. And uh, the, both of the books, there's a more scholarly one published by Oxford University Press or something like that, in a bit of a more popular version. But you see, one of the things which was so profoundly important to these it, that the gospel brought is that slaves despite the fact that they were profoundly constrained, were fully loved by God. And if you read the New Testament and you read it and see that there's this profound message that even though they're constrained, even though they're slaves, that Jesus loved them enough to die on the cross for them and that given even their constraints, it's possible for them to flourish in that and and to be vehicles by which the gospel becomes known and people are saved and 
and, and good is done in the city and, and, and God is praised. And, and, and women who were profoundly powerless in much of the ancient world, the gospel is profoundly powerful to them because they come to realize that even though there's all these limits and from the outer view, it, they're, they're unqualified, they're unsuitable, it's unlikely that God would use them, but God, God uses women, He blesses women, and, and they're, and, and, and they're able to flourish even in the midst of constrained situations. And, and so one of the things which is very powerful about the Bible is this profound message that you, you are not of more worth or value if you're married than if you're single, or of more worth or value if you have children than, than you don't have children, that there's this profound flourishing and, and, and gift of blessing which every human being in Christ gets, and they just get it. But at the same time, we, we acknowledge, well, that there, there are things like, like marriage that we embark on, and, and some of us in the room know the pain of the marriage that doesn't, that doesn't work out. And we know that there are, I know that there are people here whose moms and dads, rather than loving them, abuse them, some in quite horrendous ways. But we, but we all, we, we all, if you think about it for a second, if you think about it for a second, if you were to meet a human being and they decided that because of the fact that there is a possibility of pain in a certain path, that they weren't going to take any path at all, and maybe they just spent the rest of their life because they had a little bit of money that having Uber deliver food to them, and they never go outside, they never talk to anybody, they never engage in anything, they never try anything, and they and by doing all of those things, they never give their heart to anything, and by doing all of that, they, in a sense, they protect their heart from any type of being broken, but we would not look at anybody like that and say that they were flourishing. And, and so for many people in our culture who desperately would love to have a person they could spend the rest of their lives with, but maybe they themselves have been, you know, divorced or, or their parents were divorced maybe multiple times and, and there's a lot of, it just, I mean, at the, the end of the day, the bottom line is that the step that will lead to flourishing involves a step in a sense it's not a leap of faith. It's a step into the darkness. At least it's darkness because you can't see what's beyond that next step or two. And, and part of what we learn, actually, is that while you step into that darkness, when, in things which really are connected to human flourishing, it, what looks like darkness on the outside when you step into it is actually bright but there's still that next darkness before the next step that you need to step into and you step into and you step into. So in the Bible here, when we see the Lord calling Abram to, to, to leave behind his family, his kindred, his nation, and to go in a place where I don't know, on one hand, that's the exact same thing that's required for all human flourishing. And it's the exact same type of thing of being bound to, a, in a sense, to a, a path that is also key to flourishing. Just as we don't really think that the person who flourishes is the person who has a different girlfriend every night. 
I mean, I know that goes against the Playboy philosophy in it, and I know it goes against how most of Hollywood presents things where the hero or the heroine has a different boyfriend or girlfriend every show, and they never show any type of remorse, they never have any type of emotional breakdown, any type of emotional wounding, any type of hollowing out or deadening or anything like that. They just go from one to one to one to one as if there's no consequence to that. But in real life, if we were to meet a person who had a different girlfriend every night and they'd been doing that for 20 years, we would not use, view them as an example of human flourishing. Most people wouldn't. That part of flourishing is some types of commitments into darkness, which as you walk, turns to be light. And that's what the Lord calls Abram to here. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Well, he can't go if he has them with him, can he? He has to leave them behind. And he doesn't know where it's going to take him. God doesn't tell him where he's going to take him. So on one hand, it's, it's, it's very frightening. And part of the frighteningness is because it reveals a little bit about the fact that we have a deep, not fear of God in a way that's healthy, but a type of fear of God of the fact that when we, at the end of the day, if it's God that we're dealing with, there's no way getting around the fact that you lose control. I mean, in a sense, all relationships is going to mean you lose some control. (laughs) I mean, even parents with little kids, you know, you might think you have control, but they poop when they're going to poop. (laughs) They throw up when they're going to throw up. They cry when they're going to cry. (laughs) They do all those things whenever they're going to do it. And you just have to deal with it. It's your commitment to them and your love to them. And it's part of human flourishing. And that's actually even here seen in the text. And, and the thing which we should really jump out at us at the text is not the problem with cursing, which I'll explain in a moment, but the fact that it's so, and use a big word, asymmetric. It's so unbalanced. God merely asks Abram to do on one hand, it's a very simple thing, it's a very scary thing, but it's a very small thing on one level compared to all of the good that comes to it that God does. Look at it again. Go from your country, verse 1, and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. How is it he's going to make your name great? How is he going to bless? He's going to bless us so that we're a blessing. It's an image in a sense of that it's a, like a, an image of, of where uh, not only is God's blessing going to come into his life to bless him, but that it doesn't just sort of become, he doesn't become like a big bloated blessing, you know, as if, you know, in those cartoons where the hose goes into a person, they just get fatter and fatter and fatter. Uh, you know, or, or the, 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 the air hose goes into the person, they get fatter and fatter and fatter and they eventually float away. That's, that's in a sense, I mean, if that, if anything like that actually happened, it would be a form of torture to kill you. Uh, so it's not as if the blessing just comes in and you just become like this dam, this reservoir, this dead sea. This dead sea of blessing. But he blesses you so that it will flow out that you are a blessing to, to others. And verse three, and I will bless those who bless you. 
And him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see this piling on of blessing that's very incommensurate. So what does blessing mean? Blessing very simply in the Bible is this, at least in this particular type of a context. A blessing is that um, it's the power and the presence of God to flourish. That's what it means. It's the power and presence of God to flourish and to thrive. And it ha- and, and in the Bible, it either refers to physical things, creational things, or to spiritual things. I mean, spiritual things are also created, but they're not of this created order. And it can either be creational, just like physical, or very just mere, merely human, so to speak. It can also be spiritual. It can be both. And it's, in a sense, a coming from God of a type of presence and a power into your life that causes you to thrive or to flourish. Some of you get emails from me, uh, and I often end them, I hope you're thriving in Jesus. And when I say that, I'm in a sense saying, I hope you're being blessed to be a blessing. Because that's what blessing, in a sense, means. What does uh, does, uh, cursing mean? Well, cursing's the opposite of it. And fundamentally in the Bible, I mean, it's in a sense a decision that's made by God, but fundamentally what it usually means is it means, in a sense, a removal of presence and power that leads to your diminishment. You know, it would, it would be as if, you know, to give you an example, some of you maybe have known elderly couples, and, um, and while the couple is still alive, they seem to thrive. And then the wife dies, and all of a sudden you see that the man's life starts to completely and utterly fall apart. You know, because maybe it's because of his wife's involvement in his life that the house is tidy, that there's food in the fridge, <laughs> eats his vegetables. <laughs> there's a whole pile of things that allows him to thrive. But his wife's absence means that the, the, the natural tendencies towards being slovenly, to being lazy, to just eating fast food, those natural tendencies of his just come out. And what you see is his diminishment, not his thriving. Just a bit of an aside, I think that I think it's still the case. I don't know how COVID's affected it. Um, married, I think something like a man who's married lives, I don't know, 10 years longer, 20 years longer, something crazy. It makes no difference to the length of time the wife is married, lives, but it makes a big difference to the man. You know, and I, I can see from myself, I eat way more vegetables because I'm married to Louise and I probably would naturally all by myself. And my diet is definitely more healthy and I'm more likely to actually go see a doctor all those types of things. But you can see that in that example, a little bit of what is meant, is it's not so much that God all of a sudden starts throwing things at you to make things bad happen to you, but by, in a sense, a a slight withdrawal, the natural tendencies of you towards diminishment and destruction begin to have some type of current and weight. Uh, One of the ideas which is presented in the New Testament about the same line is it's almost as if grace is the rope that binds the ship, the, the boat to the dock. At, there's a dock on a river and there's current and, and the, there's a rope that binds the, the boat to the dock. And, and what happens is it's almost as if the cursing is where God, in a sense, begins to let the rope loose or have play and the natural current starts to take the boat away. And that, that's what's behind this idea. And you see... At the, the heart of it is, if what has caused us to be fallen creatures is our separation from God, 
then ultimately true blessing has to involve reconnecting to his presence in his person. And to be connected to his presence in his person is also to be connected to his power. For us to thrive, whether it's in physical things or whether it's in spiritual things. And, and even if you look at it, it's a very subtle thing which you can't actually see in the English uh, very, very uh, well. But when it says, uh, to him who dishonors you, I will curse. Uh, sorry, I will bless those who bless you, plural. To him, singular, who dishonors you, I will curse. It's a, a very simple level at the, uh, in, the, in the original language to emphasize that God's fundamental heart is to bless. That the blessing, in a sense, has the, the greater weight and the greater distance. And that it's not his heart to curse, that his fundamental heart towards you is to bless you. It's why, uh, I think it's in the book of Ezekiel, three different times uh, that it has this idea. And those of you who do morning and evening prayer uh, from the book of Common Prayer, you'll, you'll get this phrase that God takes no delight in the death of, God takes no delight in the death of a sinner, but rather that he will turn from his wickedness and live. And that captures perfectly this idea of the blessing and the cursing, that his heart is to bless you. His heart is to know you. His heart is to have you receive his presence into his life. His heart is that you will trust him to leave and to go and to trust him as he leaves, as he leads you and takes you, that you will trust him. And that it doesn't mean in your life that you will never have bad things or hard things happen to you, but because, you know, it isn't as, as if blessing means that you'll never be stretched, you'll never be tested, you'll never have just very, very hard things happen to you. But it means that as you, as you come to these things, you have his fundamental promise to help you. You have his presence and his power to help you face those things and deal with those things which are very, very hard and very, very difficult. And so in a sense, what you're seeing here, remember, what you're seeing here in a sense the pattern of the rest of the Bible, the program of the rest of the Bible, the promise of the rest of the Bible. These are all things that are unknown. Abram doesn't realize, of course, that him taking these small steps of faith will down the ages culminate in him becoming a mighty nation, becoming the people of Israel, that the Torah and the prophets would all be revealed to his offspring through the years, and that eventually, because salvation comes from the Jews, that the actual Messiah, who will be the person who is the profound blessing for the present, the future, and the past, Abraham is going to give birth to the one who gives birth to the one who gives birth to the one who gives birth to the one that eventually will bring about the Savior that Abraham needs himself to be made right with God. That this, on one level, small step away from his family, his friends, his country, in obedience and trusting that God, who has called him to do this, it culminates in these profound blessings down the world, down the road. So what happens in the rest of the text? The main thing about it is you wonder, is there something special about Abram? Well, that's sort of the question. Is there something special about Abram? Well, the rest of the story, these next 17 verses, will help to make that far more clear. Let's look and see what happens. Verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram, uh, Lot is his nephew, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. 
And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, so he's appearing to him at the oak uh, or the terebinth tree of uh, Moreh in Shechem. And the Lord appeared to Abram, verse 7, and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So Abram built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to them. And let's sort of pause here. One of the things which are very important about the Old Testament stories, which is why it's important for us to read them, is that stories prepare our imagination and sort of our, um, our mind to receive abstract ideas. It, in a sense, it, it prepares us to receive these things. It's one of the reasons why I know that uh, parents of children, you, uh, you, you, I mean, obviously the kids are going to watch different things on TV and other places. Um, you know, we've all seen over the last little while that you have to be very careful about the, what you let your kids watch. But one of the most important things that parents can do for their children is to read Bible stories to them. Like if, you're, if your children are just getting a, a diet of, of purely Disney type stories and never hearing Bible stories, they're going to be deeply impoverished. And it's going to be hard for them to understand different things in the Bible. And here in this very simple story, God has taken Abram to the very center of the promised land, to a place where paganism is celebrated and taught, because Moray means teaching. So right in the very center where Canaanite religion is celebrated and taught, in a sense, pagan you is right there, and right in the center, right in the face of it, God says, I don't care if if all those gods that are being worshipped believe they control and own the land. In a sense, today he says, I don't care if Apple thinks they own everything. I don't care if Google thinks they own everything. I don't care if Disney thinks they own everything. I don't care if the Supreme Court thinks they own everything. I don't care if Trudeau thinks he owns everything. I don't care if the CBC thinks they own everything. I own everything. I'm giving you the land. The land is yours. You see, in a very simple way, it's preparing us for this idea of God being almighty and owning the whole, all of the earth. That he would lead Abram to the center of the promised land where it's ruled by other people and and paganism is celebrated. And God says, disregard these gods. I am the true God. The land is going to be given to you because it's mine to give, not theirs. But is Abram special? That was a bit of an aside. Look at verse 8. From there he moved to the hill country of the east of Beth, on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and A on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. And Abram sounds like just a very, very faith-filled, special type of guy. In fact, some of us might be saying, well, George, the problem I have is that I'm not Abram. I don't have that type of faith. I don't have that type of self-possession. My life is more fits and starts with more fits than starts. I'm more the type of guy that I can take three steps forward, yeah, but then I end up taking seven steps back. I'm the type of guy that if you place snakes and ladders, I'm always getting the thing that sends me backwards and very rarely climbing up. And so I can't relate to Abram, but we'll look what immediately happens right afterwards in verse 10. 
Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, just one moment, God has just given them promised land. Abram's having a hard time. Abram says, I'm just going to trust my reasoning and thinking abilities to sort this out for myself. And he leaves the promised land. He gets frightened by his circumstances. And it gets worse. Verse 11, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman, in a beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, hmm, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now just pause. This is never good advice. Like, don't... So Abram thinks he's going to solve this by his ability to deceive people. And in the process, he wants to pretend he's not married to his wife. But one moment, how's God going to make a mighty nation if he's not married? Like, all of these promises, all of them just flee from his mind. He doesn't consult God. He just depends upon his natural human reasoning. And um, and, and look at then verse 14. And when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into the Pharaoh's house, which means his harem. Well, how is this plan going to end well for Abram? Like, we might say, what were you thinking? Or, I mean, actually, what were you not thinking? Like, how did you actually think any of this was going to work out? And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So Abram, with the consent of his wife Sarah, the two of them come up with this plan. It ends up that Abram gets very rich, but... She ends up in the Pharaoh's harem, and they're not in the promised land. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. The Lord intervenes. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you tell me what, why did you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning Abram, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now, here's the thing. One of the things that you don't know in this text, and you know it from archaeology, in the Hebrew, if you go back to the bit just before chapter 12, and you look at the names, you can see that there's a connection to the moon god in all of them. God only blesses the unlikely, the unsuitable, and the unworthy. Abram was a moon god worshiper when God called him. A moon god worshiper. He wasn't like some profound... It wasn't as if God looked around and said, Gosh, look at Abram. He's so, he's so spiritual. He's so profound. You know, he's so deep. You know, I, I just got to have him on my team. No, it's not like that. The, the thing about it is, and, and see, one of the persistent problems for us as Christians is it's very hard for us to accept that Jesus knows the worst about us 
and dies for us knowing the worst about us. But that's, remember, that's what we looked at last week. He died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. In other words, he looked at me and he looked at you. He saw the worst in us. And seeing the worst in us, what it elicits out of him is love. And, 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 and the love is not merited. It's not worthy. It's a pure, complete, and utter gift. And God, purely and utterly out of his mercy and love and desire to, 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 to give, he, he, he pours his love and his grace upon the unlikely, the unsuitable, and the unworthy. And that's what Abram's revealed to be. He's a worshiper of the moon when God calls him. He's a guy who's going to try to pretend that he's not married to his wife. He's, he's a guy who's going to try to figure out to pretend that he's not married to his wife. They're going to work it out together so they can make money and, and they can be protected. And it's, and, and he's not listening to God. He's not consulting God. He's not particular. And, and, and this is all like, not, why is he? I mean, the other thing about it is, as if, if we didn't talk about it beforehand, but it, it's in the part before this, is that Abram's old. His, he, they've been married for many, many years. His wife is old. They haven't been able to have kids. They worship the moon. By their very nature, that he's going to try to think of ways to lie and deceive to get himself out of problems. He's going to forget what God has said. He's going to do it. He is completely and utterly unlikely, unsuitable, and unworthy of God's grace. As am I. And as are you. God never gives his grace to the suitable, the likely, or the worthy. He only gives his grace to the unsuitable, the unlikely, and the unworthy, of which I am one. And so we see the very, very pattern of the rest of the scripture and the very gospel itself is set before us here in these very early words of the scriptures. I'd like you to stand. bow our heads in prayer. Father, we confess before you that we who are Christians, that we very, very quickly forget your scripture, and we imagine that there are things about us that are really worthy, that make you sort of need or have to give us grace or have us on your team or have have you as your child, that there's just things within us, Father, that sort of just compel that or that somehow, Father, that we, we easily fall into thinking that we've done some things for you that now put you in our debt and that you, you need to, to, to reciprocate and give us some blessing. And, and Father, we confess that there's something deep within us after you have blessed us by giving us saving faith that that's still there. And we ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit would uh, gobsmack us with just the graciousness of grace, the depth of grace, the depth of your love, that you never are in our debt, that you never weigh our merits, that you are never in need, that we are always in need, that we are always in need of your love, we are always in need of your grace, we are always in need of your mercy. And that to be your child is to learn to be on life support from you for the rest of our life. And that this is a good thing. Father, we ask that you bring home to us our profound need for grace. And we ask, Lord, that you bring home to us ever more deeply our need to respond to what you are offering us.
and that you would help us respond, respond in a way that accepts your grace, that trusts you, that trusts you with our future, our present, our future. And we give you thanks and praise for all that Jesus has done for us. We thank you for the way that Abraham has been used by you to be that first step that would lead to Christ, that would lead to us receiving grace. And we ask that you make us deeply grateful and to trust you more and more, whether it's with our money, our sexuality, our time, our career, our past, our future, our place in culture, that you would help us to trust you. That Jesus is our Savior and our Lord. That he is our hope of glory. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen.